Hey, everybody. Welcome to Midnight Revolution. Midnight Revolution is a podcast celebrating the friendships that anchor us in life and the deeply centering and transformative talks that accompany them. I'm Malisa Joes Khan, a family medicine physician, entrepreneur, wife, and mother of two. And I'm Catherine Akiko Day, an art director for film and television, a painter, crossfitter, and activist. Our music is by Alishaba Etoop. On today's episode, we cover the second of a two-part series where Malisa and I ask each other the question, what do you do and why? In episode seven, we focus on my journey to becoming a set designer, as well as how my challenges have inspired me to live wider than my job. All right, Catherine Day. We're talking about Catherine Day today, and we're going to find out all about you, what you do, and why. And so what's your story? What's your story, Morning Glory? So I, what I do for work is I'm a set designer for film and television, working in New York City. Uh, and I do a lot of stuff outside of that, too but it all kind of stems from how I got, how I got there. And I forget who I was talking to recently, but I'm at a point in my life where I like to live wider than my job, which I liked. I like the way that sounded because it feels, it resonates for me. I think I'll start at the beginning. So a lot of people ask me like, cause it's such a kind relatively unique job, creative. A lot of people are excited by like the creative aspect of it. Um, so for me, it kind of starts with that. I thought I was going to be a violinist or a violist. And that came from, as we've talked about already extensively from playing the violin since age four, having a Japanese American mother. Uh, I was trying to explain this recently that Asian Americans in particular tend to want their kids to play classical music and to excel at it partially I think uh for academics because it like looks good when you're applying to things but also there's like a like a high culture component to it where mm. it just like feels prestigious and feels refined um so, so we true. yeah so we were uh really like when I say we played the violin, like it was very serious. Like we took private lessons with Philadelphia orchestra members starting at age four. Um, and like, oh my gosh, I think about my own daughter who's five and I cannot even imagine yeah. making her do something like that. Like she wouldn't <laughs> be able to, I don't know. <clears throat> oh, they're able. Yeah. Um, so when, when you are on that kind of a track, uh, you get really good at it. <laughs> and, um, I, and I was, you know, surrounded by other people who were really good at it. Uh, and, and so I just kind of was surrounded by people, many of whom wanted to go into music. And, uh, I think, you know, I think we've talked about before that I used to take on the role of dutiful daughter and that I would play I was very good at playing that role. I was very good at following the rules. I was very eager to please. Um, I, I very much would go along with the appearance of success and talent and whatever. As we talked about before, fixed mindset, perfectionism was very much um, in that school of thought uh, for most of my life. Um, and so I was like, oh, I guess I'm going into music. I guess this is what we're all doing. And that seems right. <clears throat> and even though, uh, you know, we talked in your episode about Asian Americans uh, wanting their kids to be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. Uh, for me, I felt a little bit more wiggle room because I'm a girl. Uh, and I think, and my mom, my mother's a painter, so she's has a creative profession. And so that, that seemed okay to them. And it seemed like, oh, if you're going to be like a professional and, you know, you can always marry a doctor. <laughs> so 
So I thought I was going to do that. And then uh, you probably remember, we talked about this in the Maria episode, but my, like, I feel like it was like the holidays of my senior year. I had applied to music schools. I had sent in my first round of audition tapes. Um, and I, I don't know what inspired it. I probably just reached a breaking point, but I was just like, I don't want to do this at all. This is not at all what I want to do. And I'm not sure why I went along with it, but everything, when you live with a fixed mindset feels so intense. It's like making any choices, like feels so intense, like your whole identity is going to break. So I think that's why I waited to the last minute. And then I, that's probably what, where the breaking point was where, when I was like, oh, this is happening. <laughs> and like, I actually really don't want to do this. So yeah. So then I was like, I actually don't want to do this mustered up the courage to push past my fears and say, I don't want to do this. And I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, and so then I was, it was, it was very much a crucible moment where I was like, well, what do I want to do? What do I want to be when I grow up? Uh, and thankfully I was able to kind of think to myself, well, what do I do without anyone telling me to do it? What do I do regularly without someone making me or coercing me or, you know, anything like that? And like I said, my mother is a painter and I grew up drawing and painting and doing fine arts. Like I always say, like before, I don't even remember learning to do any of it because I was that young. Like I, and it was so organic to my house. Like she had an art room in the basement and it was so organic to my life, my home life that like, I don't even remember doing it. And you can see behind me, like all the paintings behind me. So like fine arts was always a huge part of my life. And I had never considered it as a profession in part because my mom kind of didn't want me to, Uh, I think because she knew how hard it was to make it as like a fine artist. Um, And so she, I think she just wished for an easier life for me. Um, But I would be like, looking back, I'd, I'd be drawing like well into the night by myself in middle school, high school, like on my bedroom floor with one light on for no reason other than it was fun and it felt great. I've also always loved movies. My dad's a big movie guy. Um, and I loved, I, I liked the, so then I thought, okay, these are two things that I really enjoy without anyone telling me. Um, and I don't know if it's because of my mom's opinions about it, but I was like, well, I don't want to do, I don't want to be a fine artist. Um, and so Mm. I was like, well, what if I combine these two things? I think Lord of the Rings had come out when we were in high school and I Mm -hmm. was obsessed with watching the behind the scenes. And I was like, oh, that seems really cool. And you can be like, I think I like the collaborative aspect of it, that you're like a team, but you're not, you know, you're not ultimately the auteur of the whole thing. Like I'm not Peter Jackson, you know, like I'm I'm not even the head of Weta Workshops. I'm like a a piece of a larger team. And I think I like that idea. And I like the idea of storytelling. And I also liked that design can be influenced by literally everything else in the world because I really liked school too. I really liked academics. I liked learning things. I liked writing. Mm. I liked science. I liked all kinds of things. And I liked the idea that I could go to undergraduate school and have a liberal arts education and anything I learned there could influence my design and my storytelling and all of that. Yeah. It kind of makes me think um, about how, you know, when I see what you do or hear what you do, it's like a lot of engineering, really, Mm -hmm. you know, it's a lot of math. It's like a lot of science sometimes. And obviously with every new subject like if you're doing a show on like something medical then you need medical information so you get to like pull from all these different these uh these different um uh subjects Mm -hmm. to to do your work which is is really sounds really fun you know to like yeah find a new subject to learn about or find a new place to explore Mm -hmm. or 
I mean, there's so much like architecture in it, but you're, you're making, you're, you're applying that to a set, right? You know, like how a building looks or like the engineering or the ar architecture of it or the design of it. Yeah. It's like all like melting together. Yeah. Really and I, I didn't like even know that specifically. Like I, the most I knew was watching the behind the scenes of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> and I can do this. None of those people featured on there were really set designers. Um, there were more like craftspeople, but so I, I didn't even know, I didn't know anything specific about the job I do now until basically I had the job. Um, so all I knew was we had dropped my brother off at Dartmouth that fall and I loved the campus so much. And I was so internally jealous of like this, it, it looks like an idyllic, like what you think of when you think of a college campus. It's like a Hogwarts, you know? Yeah. But like Vermont and, yeah. and it, the, the vibe of the student body was really cool. It's like a little more relaxed than like a Harvard or Princeton. It, it, there's, there's an ease there that you don't feel when you visit, uh, other Ivies in my opinion. Um, and you're kind of in nature more. I just really loved it. I like really latched onto that. So winter of my senior year, I'm like, I don't want to do music. I think I want to do that. I have this vague idea of what I want to do, but I want to go to, to a liberal arts school. I don't want to go to, I don't want to get a BFA, a, a bachelor of fine arts. Um, mm -hmm. I want to get a BA. So I was, my mom, bless her, <laughs> like helped me frantically apply to whatever school would accept an application late because I was applying late. Mm -hmm. Um, and that included Dartmouth. That was my top choice. And I applied to several other schools, um, and anxiously awaited, uh, responses. Uh, thankfully I got into them. Music probably had something to do with it. So thanks. Thanks for that mom, I guess. And uh, cause I submitted my audition tape, I submitted my art portfolio uh, and uh, yeah. So I got into places, ended up going to Dartmouth. I uh, freaking loved it. Uh, I was a film uh, art history modified with film studies major with a minor in Italian and theater, I think. Um, and then I went straight from there to grad school. So then I'm like at the end of college and I'm like, well, what do I do next? And I think because I'm so used to living in a world where you follow some kind of a structure and schooling. So I was like, well, now I go to grad school. And then I was like, where do I go to grad school? And the two places, the two top places were NYU and Yale School of Drama, though NYU Tisch and Yale School of Drama. So I applied to both of those. I really didn't have anything in the way of set design as a portfolio, but I cont had continued fine arts in college, just kind of on the side. And I was accepted into both basically based on my art portfolio. Uh, Cause I didn't really, I did some uh, theatrical design in college, but not really anything to put in a portfolio. And I barely understood it um, looking back. <laughs> And so I was accepted to both. I chose Yale. I, I think in part I chose Yale because it reminded me of class, like a more classical uh, teaching style where you learn, you learn the rules before breaking them. Um, and you, I kind of like that structure. Mm -hmm. uh, it's kind of an older school way of looking at things. Um, and I remember when I went, it was the head of the department it was this really famous theater designer, Ming Cho Lee, who passed away recently. Um, and he's like a legend in the business. And, but I had no idea. I, I went in really knowing nothing about theater and knowing that I wanted to use theater as a stepping stone to film and TV. Uh, and so everyone else was like really afraid of this guy. <laughs> He was a Chinese American guy um, and very old even then at the time. And 
like super revered by everyone. And I was like, like coming from a classical music background, I was like, I ain't afraid of you. <laughs> like I, I've had like 10 of you since I was four. Like, this is fine. <laughs> uh, I did really well there, I think <laughs> in part because of that. Um, and so then when I left Yale, I worked in theater for a few years. I just have no real love for theater. I, I, it really was kind of a means to an end for me. Um, there's not a lot of production design schools out there yet. Uh, um, and, and I got a lot of what I needed from theatrical graduate school in analyzing a script and telling a story in drafting, um, model making those kinds of basics of the craft. Uh, and yeah, so I, I worked in theater. It, I, it's, it's such an difficult to sustain industry theater. Mm. Yeah. I was so poor. Um, and I, I was so poor and as someone qualified to be an assistant set designer, that's probably one of the highest paying positions you can have, like just fresh out of grad school. And I was still just like completely struggling. Um, but beyond that, I, it's just, again, like not something I, I'm really drawn to or into. Uh, so then my friend, Lauren Rockman, who was two years ahead of me at Yale, and she also wanted to uh, break into film and TV. There was that show Smash mm -hmm. uh, that happened that was like about theater. It was a TV show, I think on Fox, like about theater. And she got pulled onto it in part because of her theatrical background. And then she pulled me onto it in the second season just to make models. And that was my first experience in the industry. And, um, and I loved it. And all of a sudden I was getting paid. <laughs> all of a sudden I qualified for benefits through the union and I had health insurance and like a pension started. And I just remember this feeling of like, oh my God, I'm being treated like a human. Like I'm like a whole person and everything. It was the first year I went to Hawaii to visit my brother because I could afford it. I was like, I, I remember buying the plane ticket and I was like, I can buy a plane ticket. Uh, yeah, that. So going from theater to film is, is a huge, uh, huge financial moment. Uh, it shouldn't, what, shouldn't what be you, so drastic, but it is. What do you think your five-year-old, and it's even tricky because you were already playing violin at the time, <laughs> but what do you think your, your, your current and five-year-old self would say to each other about what you do and why? I don't know. I think it would feel really natural to five-year-old Catherine. Like, again, like growing up in what was kind of organically a creative environment, even though I probably wouldn't define, like know how to define it. It would just be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and a, a lot of, um, uh, like recently I've always thought of how, so my mom's a painter and my dad's a physicist. And I feel like you could say what I do is kind of in between those two. Cause like yeah. what you said, yeah. there's, there is a lot of math involved and precision. Uh, so basically what I do, so it's always helpful to explain this to people. So what I do as a set designer, it's also called assistant art director in New York and LA. That's a different thing. Um, so the way a movie or a television show art department is set up is the production designer is the designer. They're the top top of the food chain and they interface with the director, the producers, the cinematographer, the costume designer, uh, and they design the whole thing. What I do is I work under them and they tell me what they want for something, either through they might draw a ground plan, they might have research, they might just tell me verbally, uh, they'll tell me what they discussed with those other top people 
And then I will come back. I will work out a design through architectural drafting and then show it to them and say, is it this? And they'll be like, yes to this, a little more of that. And we'll move from there. And we kind of design together. The reason why I'm called a set designer is because a lot of the design actually happens through the drafting because you have to work very quickly and with great precision and drilled into absolute details so that a set can be uh, approved, budgeted, and built in a very short amount of time. So as soon as something's approved, you usually want to start building it. Uh, so all of those little details get decided by me and that with the approval of the designer, but they can't, you know, they're not going to choose every single piece of molding. I do that. And then they tell me if it's in the right direction or not. Um, and so it's production designer. There's the art director is kind of manages the department, manages between departments, the scenic painters department, construction, grips, locations, like all of this stuff. So what I do my day to day, it's basically an office job. It's like a nine to five, except we're supposed to work. We basically work 10 hour days, five days a week. Um, And I am at my computer and I do computer drafting all day. I draw all day. So I think five-year-old me would be like, that's cool. Cause that's what I like most about it. I, and we'll talk more about this later when I get to living wider than my job, but it's not, it doesn't feel like a vocation to me or anything. It feels mm-hmm. like something I enjoy that offers me a really nice lifestyle. So it's not yeah. like I, I, I'm not like so invested in my work and I like love the final product. And often people ask me like, what's the, your favorite job you've worked on? And it, I really could care less. I, of course, there's a small part that I care about what the final product is or what the, you know, theme of the show is or what I get to design in it. But that's like a really small part of it because I ultimately don't have creative control over the final product. It's It's the process for you. It's the process. Yeah. So for me, it's more about who I'm working with. Are they good people? Uh, Is it fun? Is (laughs) Is there joy? Um, Are they kind? Uh, so that I can do my job well with excellence, but my day-to-day is drawing. I just draw all day. Um, And so that kind of brings me to where things kind of hit a turning point. So once I was on Smash, and I do want to note that I I always try to say this to people who are trying to get into the industry, which is uh, that like you, you're gonna fuck up. <laughs> you're gonna fuck up a lot. And part of the, all, a lot of these jobs in the industry, they're almost apprentice-like. Like you can't, yeah. there's no real school for learning this stuff. There's a school of hard knocks. Like you just have to go and you have to try, you have to be honest about where you're at in your experience, but you also a little bit have to fake it to make it. So after Smash, I remember I interviewed for a next job that was the pilot for hostages. And uh, the designer met with me and he was explaining, you know, this is a pilot, so it's really fast. And we need this like suburban two-story house. And we need someone who can like really draw this fast and get it done. And, and he was like, do you think that's something you could do? And I was like, no, nope. (laughs) (laughs) Cause you don't want to take like, cause I couldn't, I was like, no, I have no very little about what I'm doing. And I am not your girl on this one. Um, And so I kind of had to wait around until things were busy enough and someone would be desperate enough to take me knowing that I would need handholding, like a good amount of handholding. And that's what happened. And so you just have to like roll with it. Um, So the big turning point for me was when I was on a job that, and I've alluded to this in previous episodes where I had a toxic workplace. Mm -hmm. I came from the production designer who was troubled (laughs) 
very troubled and, uh, you know, I'm not going to try to diagnose them or anything, but there's some shit going on there that manifested in, in a lot of toxic attitudes and specifically bullying. Mm. And when I started on the job, I saw him bully RPA, but it was in this way where you're kind of like, well, are they incompetent? I, and I didn't know anyone. And I was like, he does it in this way where there's like, oh, maybe there is like something there. And so, but then you can kind of like try to justify it or something, but then you can kind of see that it like escalates and you're like, he's just setting her up to fail. And then eventually she was fired. And I was like, okay, this was like within two months of my starting the job. Mm. And then you see him being reactive to the set decorator and, then at some point it was me and then I was the target. And once I was the target, it was like that, like it was horrible. And I didn't understand what was going on. I had never been in a situation like that. I'd never been treated that way. And it really, and I learned in therapy later that it really tapped into my fixed mindset perfectionism because I was so ready to be like, I'm terrible. You're I just right. need to do a little more. Just yeah, to, I just to make it more perfect. Exactly. And so, because like I said, with the PA, it's like, I could be better. Like at that point mm-hmm. I was good enough to do that job, mm-hmm. but I could have been better. But like, <laughs> when is that not true? But like, and I also was like, that's like what they hire you for right they know where you're coming from like no one's you're not like and I'm a 10 you know I have 10 15 years of experience and I like you're not lying I didn't have 15 years of experience yeah I'm like three or something and yeah I had I had gotten my feet wet I felt confident when I started the job um but that confidence slowly got uh picked away at and so that I, I feel like it was that fall that I rem- remember very specifically the moment where I was like, I need to make a change because I had was so stressed out and learning more about bullying now. Uh, it's really common when someone's being bullied for it to like consume their whole world and they can't mm. stop thinking about it. Mm. And I remember I was that <laughs> it has happened to you. It's happened to me. Yeah. Mm. At, at my academic job, I think mm, I, yes. know, I alluded to it, um, yeah, but I quit I very that. quickly, but again, quitting that's just part it's, it's part of the game. It's part of the manipulation to get that person yes. to quit as well. Yeah. And then they, you know, and then they find someone yeah. else. And so. I, 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 I don't remember if I considered quitting at the time or not. I, I think I was more just con- at that point, just very confused and like not understanding yeah, what was happening, course. not of understanding course. how I was feeling. I was it's in very my- insidious. It's insidious and people, yes. uh, it's gaslighting, it's manipulative. Yep. So you exactly. start like, oh my God, am I terrible? I'm a terrible person. Like, yeah. What, what's wrong with me? Or yes, gosh, I just can't do this job. And I, I was uh, an easy target. I was in my- mid to late twenties. I was Mm. just a few years into the job. I'm Mm. tiny. I'm female, uh, and, and Asian-y. So I have this perfectionist mindset where I'm like, yeah, you're right. I should have done that perfectly. Um, so, but I'm laughing, I know, but looking back, it's funny. Um, so yeah, I remember this moment very specifically when I was at home and a shampoo bottle slipped out of my hand and I burst into tears and I was like, that's not okay. Like something's not working. Something's wrong. Um, not that I didn't know that something was wrong, but I, that was the moment when I realized that like whatever coping I had learned up to that point in my life was not cutting it. And I Mm -hmm. needed to try something else. That's all I knew. That's like the extent of my intellect in that moment. So that's when I decided to start therapy. I'd never been to ther- a therapist before. Um, and at the same time, that's when I started CrossFit. And just because I was like, sure, whatever, anything, whatever I'm doing now isn't working. So I'm going to try anything. And both of those really helped me. I very quickly in therapy, started, I'm, I'm sure 
Rachel summed me up real quick, like not hard looking back to see what was going on. But very quickly, I was able through therapy to be like, oh, this is why this is affecting me so much. And oh, he's, this is about him. And this isn't about me. Right. It didn't make it easier per se to in my day to day, but at least I had a little bit of separation where I could be like, oh, I'm not terrible. And like, and I started to be able to see and, and once that shift happened in me, his behavior really escalated. I think because he could see that it was like just a little bit harder to get to me. Mm -hmm. And like, I decided to stick it out for the rest of the season. And, and on that, it was like a 23 episode show. So it was like almost a full year. And towards the end, he was literally making stuff up that he was mad about that he would say I did that. Like by the end, it was so ludicrous the extent that he was in his own head in a dysfunctional way Mm. that had nothing to do with me. Like he was fabricating errors in my work and saying that he didn't approve things that he had his signature on things like that, where I was like, wow, this is like, this is even more beyond the scope of me than I realized previously. Right. Um, so I was able to stick it through that job. I learned a lot in the process. It changed my life, honestly. Mm-hmm. And it brought me to therapy and CrossFit. And I, I think I've said before that CrossFit was like the physical manifestation of what was happening to me internally, where I was voluntarily doing something I was not good at, that I had no idea what I was doing. That was something new. And I was doing it in front of other people. Uh, and it was fine. <laughs> and the more you do that, the more you're like, oh, this is not just fine, but I'm actually having fun and I'm actually learning new things and I'm gaining confidence and, uh, and literal and figurative strength. Um, and so that was cool. And by the time I left that job, uh, it was almost like leaving a, like a toxic or abusive relationship. Like yeah. I remember the day I left, I was still kind of like, I would think I was literally shaking. Um, my boyfriend at the time, Carter had, I'll never forget the my last day he had taken the subway to Steiner. And when I left the building, my own car drove up to me <laughs> with music blaring and balloons coming out of the sunroof. And he had taken the subway to Steiner and gotten in my car and put the balloons in and driven up to me. And he was like playing, I forget what song it was, but something about freedom. And <laughs> And it was so fun and so great, but I couldn't enjoy it because I was still just like, oh my God, I can't believe that's over. And I can't believe, and it took me like a week to be like, oh, I, like, I never have to see him again. And like, I don't, well, you don't have, have to-, to be in a constant state of stress and fear, which is becomes physical, like that cortisol, a- that's hundred percent armor. Yeah. Yeah. Which you can't, it doesn't turn off. Right. So all those those hormones that are like pulsing takes yeah. time and rest and like taking care of yourself completely be decompressing processing yeah yeah and to your point from your experience like now I would say like just a few years after that I had learned so much and I had grown so much that I was in a place and I'm there now where I'm like if I ever am in a situation like that again yeah probably really quick I would recognize it, become aware of it, label it and exit. Um, just cause as you get older, you, yeah. you're better able to, to see it for what it is and to understand what is and isn't in your control and totally. that you don't have to accept such a situation. You just don't have to. Um, when you're at that time, I think it's not just that I didn't have the language for it, but you're younger in your career, you're more vulnerable. I didn't feel like I had as much of a choice to refuse a job or to alienate someone in the business, um, which is why it's so important to create structures and uplift 
uh, people like PAs and, and people who are newer, part of the work that I do now. Um, so I feel like another part of it, I took some notes that, that were a part of that shift is this idea that we've talked about before about the perception of success. And I think in, it's not just an Asian American thing. I think in America, there's this idea that your job is who you are and that yes. your job is your identity and it's your worth and uh, it ties your worth in society and your self-worth to this perception of success and competency in your job. And from that point on, I really started to shift my mindset on that. And it, it shifted to what I said before, where I'm like, I enjoy my work, but it's not who I am. And it's not everything that I do. Uh, and it's not even, I, I would, it was like one of many things that I do that are a part of who I am. Right. Um, and so from there, I just started to, it happened really slowly, but as I, I said before, my work in therapy, my work in CrossFit started to shift my mindset to more of a growth mindset. I started to read more. I started to read a lot. I started to get interested in, um, you know, I started to listen to this podcast that was by this CrossFit coach. And he talked a lot about these different books, including Mindset by Carol Dweck, where she talks about fixed versus growth mindset, started learning more about integrity and character and cultures uh, and started to tie that to social structures like racism, sexism, uh, homophobia, uh, and, and things just started to cook in my brain. And at the same time, I started to become more open to trying new things. I learned how to surf. I started painting again, uh, things that I probably would never have done in a fixed mindset state. And so my world started to open up and started to blossom and started to widen. And uh, I, I think it was when Trump was elected is probably the moment um, when I was working with a boss who was really great. Uh, she had shared with me um, an experience of sexual assault in the industry uh, Trump was elected while I was on that job. And then Me Too happened. And when Me Too happened, I met with her and another friend and we decided, you know, I think a lot of people felt really helpless at that time mm, yeah. with things outside of their control. And we came together and we were like, I think it would make us feel better if we worked on something in our control. And what's available to us is our union and our workplaces. And so we came together and unbeknownst to us, there was a similar group of women in the live performance world who were meeting together at the same time. And these two groups approached the union and the respectful workplace committee was created. And it, while it, ask you about that, that yeah. <clears throat> how while that it, toxic situation kind of informed this work that you do now. Completely. And it began from a me too perspective. It began from a perspective of sexual harassment, uh, and assault and looking at systems of accountability, which are really tricky in our industry because we all work freelance. So someone mm. can um, assault someone on one job, even if a complaint is lodged, the job eventually ends. It can end really quickly. It can end in a year, but it, at some point it's over. That person can just move on to another job because um, it's a different company. It's like, and we're kind of in, in right. film and TV that we're in this kind of limbo space where we're paid via W-2. Yeah. However, we're not full-time employees. 
Uh, so we receive some of those benefits, but not all. And it's not consistent because you work from job to job. Another way this affects us, which we're trying to work on right now is paid family leave. So mm. New York state has great paid family medical leave, but, um, you'd, you have to win the lottery to qualify. And even in film and TV where you're paying into it, we make plenty of money. Um, but you're not necessarily working for the 26 consecutive weeks for the same employer, which is actually a payroll house, which like, you don't really have control over who your payroll company is. So it's and a shows, very, and that's just like the nature of shows, as you were saying, like, okay, if you get a huge show that runs 26 episodes or something sure yeah. maybe you, you might work for a year maybe if you happen the to get pregnant during job, that time <laughs> yeah and the nature of the job is and this is a whole reason that it's freelance is that they're shorter jobs and that you mm -hmm. do a few during the year and that's how you're going to make your money so it's, it's baked in to how yeah and the way work. the law is written is based on if you're at a full-time job so it's like right. how many consecutive weeks and consecutive hours and blah 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 and it just doesn't really make sense in our industry if you're in live performance it's even more the, those designers usually get paid 10.99 and they don't get paid nearly enough most people don't even qualify for union-based health insurance like so that's a whole other kettle of fish there um so yeah so we started we sprung from the Me Too movement, but we started to really realize that it had to go way beyond systems of accountability. Accountability is super, a super important component, but how do we shift the culture of the industry so that things don't happen in the first place, right? We're thinking of, let's talk about microaggressions, right? Most people, when they think of discrimination, bias, harassment, anything like that. The only thing you think of to approach a system of accountability is if it seems really heinous, right? It's like, oh, it's bad enough that I'm going to report it, right? And even then, it's so daunting and intimidating to report anything. You don't want to step on anyone's toes. You don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to, you hope that the reaction isn't as you know, disproportionate to what you're feeling. You're, uh, you're afraid of repercussions, retaliation. There's like, even when it's heinous, it's hard to report. So how, and by that point, when something's that heinous, there had yes. to be a million warning signs up to that point. Right. Oh and it's probably not an isolated incident. I have so, a great story for that. So how do we collectively create a culture where it's where feedback is normalized, right? Where it's normal to offer feedback to mm -hmm. a coworker or a boss, right? And, and that, and once we started to delve into it and once all the books that I had read that I basically put myself through a course through just out of my own curiosity started to really coalesce, I was like, I think there's something here where if we consciously learn about and create cultures and we create systems that help people create cultures, is this the unique mm -hmm. thing in my job too, is that every job you have, there's a new culture created. Even if you're working okay. with some of the same people, someone's different, the environment's different. It's a different it's, dynamic. It's a different dynamic. So you mm -hmm. have the opportunity every time to create a new culture. There's a saying that culture happens in the 15 feet around you. So it's like in any given moment, your actions and your energy can shift the culture around you. And we all know people like that, right? People who make us feel bright, who make us, who inspire us to live with integrity and purpose, or people who bring you down, or people who make you cynical. People's energy and their their inner kind of being and their, their conscious action create culture. So how do we inspire people in our industry and how do we create systems that make it possible for people to live with integrity? I had one of our members at some point, there was like a success story and, and one of my committee members was like, you're making integrity cool again. And I was like, I love that. <laughs> It's like so the best it, compliment. And you can really draw a line, right? From the toxic workplace that I was in and mm -hmm. not wanting 
to have anyone have to go through that or to at least be armored with the information and the resources to label it and acknowledge it and move on from it and choose to move on from it so that that type of environment Mm. is like an outcast in our industry, right? Like we're not accepting that collectively, but how do we also bring those people into the fold too and be like, Hey, this isn't the best way of doing things. And there's other ways of doing it. And like, just because you learned how to be this way and you grew up in the industry that was accepting of this as a norm, you can choose another path and you'll actually feel better and you'll be more successful in your work. And like your team will want to work for you and your product will be better. Um, How do you, how do you do that? So we're, we're, we have a three, we have three teams currently. One is uh, ethics and compliance that Mm -hmm. also pairs with accountability. And they're working on a code of conduct for the union. We already added uh, language to our union constitution, basically stating the principle of being against bias, harassment, discrimination, all of that, um, and a commitment to moving the culture of our workplaces uh, towards one of respect and integrity, because you have to name your purpose before you do anything. Right. And then, so ethics and compliance and accountability are working on, they're looking into systems of restorative and transformative justice. Um, they're creating a code of conduct and planning on how to roll that out and create buy-in amongst our members. Um, our communications team is working with the communications director on Instagram. Our, our union previously didn't have an Instagram account or really official social media accounts. And we're kind of relying on these archaic ways of communicating with our members and that there's just, there wasn't a lot of openness or transparency or connection with our membership. So we're shifting it that way. We're also looking into meeting facilitators. And then we have a working caregivers team that focuses on that aspect of things. Uh, breastfeeding at work, uh, pregnancy discrimination, working on um, getting access to paid family medical leave, not just through the state, uh, but we're hoping to push for some kind of PFML through IATSE, which is our umbrella international union, uh, through which we get our health insurance because our employers pay into that. And then the union kind of, um, administers it. So why can't we do something similar, right. For paid family medical leave, because currently there's Mm. nothing. They literally tell you to just file for unemployment, which is technically illegal. Um, so yeah, so, uh, yeah, those are the basics of what my committee does. And in general, Uh, what I strive for, I run most of our monthly meetings is to, I strive for the committee itself and to create the kind of culture we want to see within the committee itself. Yeah. And, and I do that by talking about culture explicitly and opening openly all the time, talking about things I've learned, talking about things I'm learning, opening the floor to discussion and feedback, um, Do you talk about mistakes? I'm curious. All the time. We talk about fixed and growth mindset. We talk about how to give and receive feedback. Mm -hmm. Uh, I try to model my own mistakes. um, And we do if then scenarios, uh, like, which I love, which are, you know, we create a scenario. If this happens, then what is what are some responses that would be in line with your values? Something else I think about a lot and, you know, we've, the medical culture is, leaves a lot to be desired. Yes. And as you're saying, each level, like each rotation that you go on in medical school or in residency, you're meeting a new set of superiors. Yeah colleagues. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course there's a culture of like literally doing your job, which is like interacting with the patient, which has its own like, um, needs and, um, 
there's such cultural sensitivity that that needs to be learned, understood. And a lot of it is based on mistakes, right? So mm, that you yes. have to feel the freedom to make a mistake, to be yep. able to talk about it. And the second part of it also being that in a very hierarchical culture, which yeah. it sounds like uh, production is very similar, mm-hmm. uh, being able to give feedback to superiors and yeah. not to, and, and not, again, the onus is not on the person that's the subordinate, but mm-hmm. the, 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 the person who's in charge, um, setting up the discussion and saying, so, you know, how am I doing in this? Not, do you have yep. feedback? Right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Um, Asking explicitly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How am I doing this? How am I doing in communication? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you feel when this happens? Rather yeah. than saying, like, do you like me? You know, you know, if you ever heard people like like you have no issue with what's going on here, right? And I like Yeah. <laughs> oh great. yeah, everything's good. Not a push question. No, <laughs> and there's awesome. There's uh yeah, there's a fragility that happens too with with that kind of hierarchy, but also like in art, in the arts world too, there's ego involved and there's, there's kind of like this idea of this old way of doing things. One, one aspect of that is that there's some people you'll encounter who are like, well, that's how it was. And this is exactly like in medicine. Well, that's how it was when I did it. And so you just have to do it. And I suffered, therefore you suffer. Oh my gosh. All the, all the freaking time. And not mm-hmm. only that, and I think this happens in apprentice type work, right? Yeah. So I'm, I'm the master and you're the student Yes, is that this is how you learn, right? I learned so much. Yeah. And th- these are, and these are the perfectionist mm-hmm. people that will really get down and do the thing. Yep. It's not necessarily good for your, your health or your culture or the future. No. It's not sustainable and it's not at all right? necessary. It's not necessary. It's to get not the same at outcome. all necessary, but, but did I learn are, a lot? from that horrible experience on the job? Yes. Did it have to happen that way? No. No, Is is there any person on the face of the earth that avoids struggle and challenge? No, it doesn't matter. Like you, you don't have to set things up for people Mm -hmm. to struggle and destroy their health and their mindset. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people aren't going to be able to even come back from that. So like you're losing valuable resources. Yeah. And I think people are going to struggle anyway. It's so short-sighted to be like, you need to do it this way yeah. because that's the only way to learn. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it just reminds me of how humans think about everything, parenting as well, yep. is that I can be the pushover, say yes to everything, or I can be the mean strict person that mm-hmm. forces rules on others. Mm-hmm. Is there no other way? Absolutely. So there's compassionate boundaries, there's goal setting, there's mm-hmm. feedback, um, yep. there's normalizing mistakes there's normalizing sort of the dynamic mm-hmm. nature of learning, right? There's supportive environments, there's collaborative work, yeah. um, team building, again, integrity, like all of these yeah. things mm-hmm. that can, there, there's not just one way, like I'm the nice guy that says yes to everything and I'm a pushover and people do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm a mean lady and I, I call the shots and everyone's scared of me, but I get it done. There, there's not, just those two ways no, of being no. and, and to black and white life like that, just you're missing out again on that. What did you call it? Like the blossoming of what it can happen when people yeah. really care about each other and work together. Yeah. And feel and you get to the same out. Yeah. You get to the it, same outcomes. All it really comes down to, right. Is, and this is how I try to approach the work is getting people on board by talking about values that they're not going to disagree with. Um, Okay. Let's say someone's like, I don't understand why we have to say our pronouns. I don't get it. I don't like it. It's PC, whatever. Mm -hmm. And you're like, do you believe in kindness? (laughs) Do you believe in being compassionate to this person that's right in front of you? Do you, are you okay with that person being upset? or being hurt. Do you like it when you're hurt? You know, like this is, this is the basics of what we're talking about is matching your action with your stated value. Right. So I believe in kindness. I want to be remembered as a kind person. I believe, you know, and it's, it's taking this mindset shift where 
so about America. That's like, I'm my own person. I am an island and I have to protect my resources and my well-being mm-hmm. as opposed to I am interconnected with all the people around me. I, we, I am beholden to you and you are beholden to me. Yeah. Which what is I do affects you. Yeah, exactly. Interbeing. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And yeah. that informs my work too. Like I, I have read so much literature and over it's particularly over lockdown when we were coming up with this podcast, I was making a lot of connections too with how these same principles and these same tactics can also work to dismantle um, systems of bias um, in the same way, where <laughs> just like I was talking about with pronouns, it's like, it's like, how, how do we inspire people to want to live with integrity and to become aware of their actions and to analyze how their if their actions are in line with their values in a real way. Right. So that's the work that I do in the union. Um, and it, it's also a component of service. So I, through reading all of this literature and stuff and, and being who I am and being a little extra, I have come up with. <laughs> so extra, Catherine. I do regularly think of, yes, I do regularly think about um, my goals in life and what I, where am I aiming? What am I doing? Where am I aiming and assessing what that means in a literal sense? In the past several years, I've come up with service health expansion and the, and this kind of aligns my day-to-day, my week-to-week, my month-to-month, my year-to-year. So service is includes my union work. It's about community, but it's also just about community, even just serving you, Malisa, should you need anything or, you know, or reaching out or staying in touch with my community, um, creating gathering spaces, uh, making food for someone who just had a baby, whatever it is, it can be as small as that, or it can be bigger, like my union work, or it can be even bigger, like, um, like supporting a, a grassroots fundraising campaign or something. Advocacy. Yeah. Yeah. Advocacy, um, advocacy activism. So starting the book club that I started, which is (laughs) almost a selfish project because it helps me read about and learn about historically excluded voices that I don't normally get to hear or like aren't a part of what's the mainstream put out there. So it's like, having this supplemental education and there's a, uh, a few people who are super into it with me and we have a meeting tomorrow um, where we're discussing all about love by bell hooks um, yeah so the those are the different and then just generally activism too if if an issue comes up or a piece of legislation comes up that uh, I feel really drawn to fight against or fight for because of how it aligns with my stated values. I will try to throw myself all in into that and call my reps and go on the social and you activate my community um, to create that kind of change. The health aspect of my personal goals has to do with myself <laughs> because you cannot pour from an empty vessel. So it's about uh, my activity, my fitness, uh, my physical health, my mental health, um, and just like caring for and respecting myself because you start to learn as you grow that that helps you care and respect for others, that it's fluid. Just like you said in that Zen concept, it's like this kind of interdependence of my care for myself is also extends to how I view you Mm -hmm. and, and that care and respect kind of goes both ways. And then expansion for me is about pushing past my comfort zone. So whether that's travel or trying new things or making art, it's, it's when you push through your vulnerability, it's purposefully putting yourself in situations where you feel vulnerable, Mm. but also safe, like a certain amount of safety, but that you don't feel totally safe. (laughs) So you're like the risk being to your comfort zone, not to your safety. 
but yeah, like went, for example, surfing, I came to, um, after I had started to be in therapy and CrossFit and, and my mindset started to shift from fixed to growth. And I was looking for some kind of a retreat. I was like, maybe a yoga retreat. Cause like, that's what I'm good at. And I saw this one that was like yoga and surfing in Spanish. And I was like, I, the thought of surfing, like terrified me. And I was in a place at that time where I was like, that means I should do it. <laughs> um, so expansion to me is that expansion mm. to me is saying yes to the things that scare you. And because they scare you, a lot of times you have to set the intention to do it. Otherwise yeah. it's so easy to just like not do it. Um, so those are my three kind of focal points that influence and dictate for myself the direction that I'm heading now. I and I, I try to like, it's so Catherine. And it's so well thought I out. know it's so me. <laughs> it's so the other thing though too, is that as you get older and you get wiser and everything, you're just kind of like, you, you learn how to embrace the aspects of yourself that yeah. earlier in life, you might've been like, you felt vulnerable about or embarrassed about, or sh even shameful about, but that that's you're why just I like, say no goals. Exactly. <laughs> but like, that's just me. That's the way I'm going to do things yeah, and, no, I love it. and I love just it. go with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm so different. So I love so different. Just like observing you and like how you do things. Cause I'm like, for me, it's really setting up my values and then like the pieces always fall into place. Mm. So I, I, but to like sit down and kind of like, write, I, I don't know. It feels, makes me feel boxed in. I think mm, yeah. yep. tied down that tracks with you. Um, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I think just that creative aspect of my mind, like I can't, my mind can't do it. Mm, yeah. Um, but I've always found that if I align my values and that's super important mm -hmm. to me, I can't. Yeah. but, uh, <laughs> I threw that sign in there because of our previous conversation. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Cause I'm a Capricorn. Like I take these things really seriously, but if I mm -hmm. set it up again, how I plan for our, our meetings, it's like, mm -hmm. I do it like before bed. And if I, if I clear it up in my mind mm -hmm. and then diagram it or I flow diagram it in my mind, yeah. it's like etched in stone. It's there, you know, I can't, it's mm -hmm. yeah, my yeah. Heart. so I know. And I always find that I find that I have a very strong sense of myself Mm. And you can definitely lose it. Residency, parenting, you know, having children, starting a job, marriage, like all of these things can challenge yeah. it, but, but it's kind of always there mm -hmm. for when you take a break or, you know, you step back or you take a breath. It's yeah. kind of like, for me, that's just how it works. It's just sort of etched in stone there. And again, and then, it's like, as you get older, you start to embrace who you are. Yeah, so it's like, yeah. I love that that's you. <laughs> and like, that's what you have to offer. That is, that's not me. And, but like, exactly. it's so good for me to see and hear and experience it. And so you start to learn as you get older that like that part of you that maybe you used to be embarrassed or ashamed of totally, or totally. try to tamp down is actually your greatest gift. Oh my, oh my gosh. This is great. Well, I don't know how to wrap this up. I, um, I'll, I'll say too that like, so what I, what I do is, kind of like what you said in the beginning of your episode where yeah I'm a set designer but I'm also a daughter I have that community with my family my sister my sister-in-law really cool Abby um she's so cool I'm a pet mom that's a really big part of me and my identity I love dog training and dog psychology I love having connection to animals uh I'm a painter I'm an activist I'm a crossfitter like everything in my little blurb bio. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I, for me, what I do and why like is, is wider than my occupation. And that's, that's yeah. where I am at this point in my life. And that's how I try to set up my life too, including, you know, how many hours I choose to work. Um, yes. What jobs I choose to take and with what people, um, so that I can have, do an excellent job at work and be able to have time, energy, 
brain space compassion to expand wider than my job. I love it. That's amazing. And I also wanted to say that I'm, you know, come constantly inspired by your story, your narrative, <clears throat> you know, just like our long-term friendship. It's been like 20 years, right? I know. Like, oh my God. It's been a really long time. So, you know, to see you grow and, and change and also like how, how it parallels and how we're so different and yeah. then the parallels there. Yeah. So thank you for being Catherine. Thank you. I've, I've been thinking about that a lot too. Like the way that through long, amazing friendship like this, you just get to witness each other. Like you, <sighs> you just get to witness each other and I know. inspire and influence each other. But, but really even just being able, like the, the blessing of being able to observe one another and, yeah. and watching like the growth and the change and the good and the bad and the, and everything that comes from it is just so cool. It is so cool. It is so cool. And I feel like, I mean, that's why we're doing this podcast and we're friends because mm -hmm. we both think that's cool. <laughs> that's definitely true. Maybe somebody else is like, that's so not cool, mm -hmm. but we both think it's cool. <laughs> that's so not cool. <laughs> You're the best. You're the best. Maybe. All right. Thank you. Bye. Have a great day. You too. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Midnight Revolution with Melissa Joyce Khan and Catherine Akiko Day. Our music is by Alishaba Etube. Like, follow, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcast.